I'm Claire. And I'm Natalie. And we are a licensed psychologist and licensed school psychologist and a pediatric occupational therapist. And we are here to talk to you about stories of kids and adolescents who have maybe some struggles with development or disabilities, and also the parents and the caregivers and the teachers and the therapists who love them and work with them. We've divided this podcast up into two parts. So the first part is focused more on stories and experiences that we have and that parents have shared with us about their child um, with special needs. And then the second part, we delve into more details about those experiences and what we would do with them clinically if you want some more information on that. Yep. I think that's it. Goodbye. The following message is brought to you by our lawyers. A Little Cerebral is a podcast documenting a conversation between a psychologist and a pediatric occupational therapist. This is intended as a conversation between two colleagues. We are not providing legal, medical, educational, or any other advice, recommendations, or treatments through this podcast. Good evening. My name is Claire. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Natalie. We're going to talk about attachment. And it's kind of late, and I'm kind of giggly. And we've had a lot of tech issues. We're going to hope that this works out. So I want to tell you some about attachment. And there is so much to say about attachment that I think I'm going to have to do this in like two or three parts. So today, I'm just going to talk about like a definition of terms, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of it, some of my own experiences, and in terms of the history, I'm just, it's all the way up to Mary Ainsworth, which doesn't mean anything now, but it will mean something later. Unless, of course, our listeners are familiar with attachment, and then it will mean something. So I'm going to tell you about attachment. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm ready. I, okay. I was falling asleep. Are you ready for your- <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's very, very phone. interesting, Claire. Totally tell you all about attachment. Okay. So I wanted to do a definition of terms first. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was... Um, Imprinting, right? So imprinting is something we see birds do. Um, So like ducks and geese, they attach themselves when they're first hatched to the first object they see, right? And they use the word object. And I know there's like that kind of like idea or joke about like if a duck sees like, I don't know, a wheelbarrow going through the yard that it would attach itself to the wheelbarrow. (laughs) I don't know that that's true. And I'm not. It's a pretty bad joke. But there's like that idea. Have you ever seen that? Where like it'll be like like if there's a Roomba that was moving around and like the duck hatch that it would attach itself to the Roomba. There, like people, I I've know. never heard. I don't of really Roomba get out much t- anymore, so I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I don't think that's true. Is what I'm saying. But it is true for like living beings. So one of the things that my sister, so this is the same sister with Gigi the goat and the bees, and she has her own ducks and chickens now. Um, she might have some other things too. Um, anyway, so I remember when I was, I think I was in college and I came back to visit and she was in high school. She was like, Hey, we're going to go ducking. Do you want to come? And I was like, is that even like a word? And, um, but ducking is her made up word for walking with all these ducks, following her in a line over to a pond across the road and going swimming with her ducks. Wow. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Because, um, like I think in elementary schools they do it a lot now where they'll have like like eggs and like they'll have chickens right and you have chicks hatch and you get to watch the chickens hatch yeah um and so anyway I think during I don't know if it was her AP biology course it was like freshman biology or what it was but they did the same thing 
except then everybody was like, they had these ducks because everybody kind of got their own duck. And then like, nobody had a place for a duck. Cause like, what do you do if you live in town? Right? Like, what do you do with your duck? Um, and so they all went to live on a nice farm with my sister nice. and she became, the, she became the master of ducks and they followed her around and it was really cute. So imprinting. So imprinting is kind of a basic thing and it comes from ethology, uh, bonding is slightly different. So that's coming to rely on a primary figure for survival needs. So the duck has to imprint by seeing a Roomba or its mother. Wait, what and are you saying? A Roomba? Oh, I'm just like joking. those little cleaning <laughs> things. Okay. 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 Imprint. It follows the first thing it sees, right? Yeah. So that's imprinting. That's like what it's doing behaviorally. And that facilitates a bond. And there's like this sensitive. In fact, I think I've read sensitive period, but I think it would actually be a critical period where if the imprinting doesn't happen, then the bonding doesn't happen. Mm. So then let's move on to human beings. So then there's attunement. And there's this amazing video um, that I really want to post when we post this episode because there's a psychiatrist who describes this with like visuals in like this amazing way. She's talking about what's going on chemically um, in the bodies when you have these like moments of attunement and reciprocal interactions. Um, but essentially it's back and forth patterns of interactions between caregivers and parents and a child in which they are like learning to respond to the cues of others. Right. So it's when you have your baby um, looking at you and you're making like googly eyes at it and it's making eyes back at you and then you're smiling and then it's smiling and it might, it might coo. And there's all these like micro level interactions that happen all day long. And those are really, really important because that's how we learn to read faces and nonverbal cues. And we learn if the world is responsive or not. So that, and that starts to happen, I believe, is it six to 18 months? I always get my time frames for those like really little time, like the really little kids. So like mm. babies, infants, I'm not as great at, at knowing about them, but I want to say it's like six to 18 months. I'm probably a little off on that, but more or less it's around that time period. So, and then remember in those first few years of life, we have proliferation, right? Of the connections between neurons, and then they're going to get pruned back later so that all the thinking and processing is efficient. So if this attunement is happening during this very critical time, um, you are then setting down, I'm going to say again, a template for what you understand to be true about um, whether or not the world is responsive to you and whether or not people will take care of you mm -hmm. and your ability to read faces and your ability to read um, some of the other nonverbal cues that we get and self-regulation. And so sometimes if parents, and they always use the word mother because so much of this research happened when mothers were, you know, the only primary caregiver. Um, but if parents are not attuned to their child, because of course that can happen, um, sometimes they are not like aware or really reading the child well, and they may be upregulated, like they may be um, having a response that's too intense for that child. And then of course that's causing like a sense of dysregulation in the baby. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a guy, his name is Stanley Greenspan. He um, was a psychiatrist and he's the person who pioneered something called the floor time method and it's used with autism. And it's a little different than ABA. I mean, it's definitely like responding to things that kids are doing, but it's very emotions based. So it's huge 
like big affects, so big facial expressions, really like exaggerated voice, because the idea is that you want to go back and help kids get some of those sort of fluid skills that they may have missed or that something happened in terms of their development, mm-hmm. right? That they don't, they don't have that ability to read cues. Um, okay. So anyway, Stanley Green fan, he, um, pioneered the floor time method. And he, if you check up on him and his stuff, like there's a lot more information than I'm giving you now. So attunement, that's like the thing that's happening all day long, right? In theory, that is over time, um, results in attachment. So attachment is more complex and that's the emotional bond. Um, and that's how primary needs are met and it's important for survival. And I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but also it's important because it allows us to have this sort of, again, I'm going to say template, but like this, this idea, they would use the word schema in psychology of like who is reliable and who is not. And we take that with us, right? Because those primary relationships, impact our romantic relationships and they impact our relationships with our children. Um, okay. So those, and anyway, so that more or less, um, yeah, that's the definition of terms. Can I, can um, I cut in for a second? Yeah. You're totally. doing beautifully by the way. Thanks. Yes. I feel very educated. Um, oh, great. yes. You know, I was thinking, um, when you're talking about this, about babies Mm-hmm. And their first experiences and like babies who um, are, you know, sent to the NICU or spend time away from, you know, the mother or children who are adopted and all of those things in terms of, you know, what you were just referring to. Um, are you going to speak about that or is that another time or we'll table it? Oh, or How very interesting that you asked me because that is where I'm going next. Oh my gosh, our segues <laughs> are fucking unbelievable. <laughs> so I'm going to read a quote. So I want to like definitely cite my sources. And one of the primary places that I got information in terms of the history of attachment, not just about attachment, but the history piece, is a book called Becoming Attached. It's by Robert Karen. And so a lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk about, I got from that. And I want to quote that as well. And then I, I mean, I'll cite my other sources later. Like, I mean, some of it's just like, I went to grad school, so can I cite grad school? It's like stuff I remember. <laughs> or I learned it somewhere and I don't remember where it was. But um, when I can cite something, I will. And also because, of course, then people can read more about it. Yeah, so right. there's this like really touching, not touching in a good way, affecting quote in the beginning of this book. And there's in 1760, so this is a docu, like this is where we're documenting the impact of not having attachment, right? So in the foundling home, which would have been like an orphanage, the child becomes sad and many of them die from sadness. And that is a direct quote from a bishop in 1760. So, I mean, it's not like the most earth shattering quote, but it at least speaks to the fact that this has been observed for a while. um, The idea of failure to thrive. So I'm going to jump ahead to the early 1900s. So in the early 1900s, like um, some several researchers who were working on other things began to notice that the behavior like the behaviors of kids who were adopted were different than kids who were not adopted. And that's because like at that point, they believed that you should adopt kids later so that you could, you could ensure they weren't defective. Hmm. And that was put forth by a guy who was really into eugenics, whose name I don't remember. Um, but he was pretty influential and he was like, you have to make sure your kid's not defective 
So don't adopt them until about three years old. He seems kind of douchey. Yeah, for sure. He was like one of the first douches in the field of attachment. In the field of douches. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> and then later on came Conrad Lorenz, who I think was a Nazi. And he was definitely a huge douche, but um, also contributed a lot to our knowledge of uh attachment what mythology. i'm taking away from that is that there's lots of douches out there so just be careful yes be careful even if they do contribute significant um findings to the field of psychology we have ethical codes now we can't do the same kind of stuff people used to do so i don't know this guy's name was arnold gessel i think it might be gessel i don't really know but he was the douche who um decided that it was okay to make sure that your child isn't defective um, as if they were like something you bought at a store. So, <laughs> so they have some examples in this book of a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And these are kids like who they didn't know how to play. They had little affect and they were indiscriminate in their affection by that meaning that they were affectionate to everybody, which is different than just like a friendly kid. But like, if you think about when I've met, when I met your son, right. And he comes out and he's friendly, but he's kind of shy yeah. as he approaches me and he's making sure that I'm a safe person and he's hanging closer to you because he knows that you are a safe person and you are like his base of safety right and mm -hmm. so that's completely appropriate just running up to random people you don't know and saying I love you which happens um that's indiscriminate affection and that was so my husband and I um we did a lot of volunteer work at an orphanage in a country that is not the United States and, um, we, we saw a lot, we saw a lot of this stuff. Like it sounds actually, made up, Claire. <laughs> I'm going to have to fact okay. check this. <laughs> I just don't want to like, I don't want to give away a lot of personal information. No, and fine. some of the reason I have like good reasons for not doing that, that I can explain to you later, but I'll just like, it was in Latin America. And so one of the things, a poor country in Latin America. So one of the things that we saw, um, we saw a lot of kids with failure to thrive. Like you'd pick them up and they'd be like limp, no eye contact, just completely dispassionate, right? Like um, not really even responding physically. And then you would see the occasional kid who some people might say is, you know, is resilient. And maybe in that context, sure, because they're not starting to wither away and have failure to thrive. But you would see kids who are pretty indiscriminate in their affection. Um, and I'll, I'll give more examples of these kinds of things later as we go. So then there's a guy, and his name is um, David Levy. And he, in 1937, or Levy, I don't know because I never met him, but I think it's Levy. So in 1937, he starts documenting these cases. And he's seeing that you know these kids who were adopted at three years old and six years old, they had very like surface-level attachment, um, very surface-level like um, social interactions. And there were a, there was a lot of stealing, lying, tantrums, um, failure to make meaningful friendships, a lot of behavior problems, and aggressiveness. Then we get into hospitals, right? So hospitals around this time were really preoccupied with germs. So kids were minimally held. Um, they'd prop a bottle up, and then parents were not allowed in because they didn't want the parents to bring the germs in. Oh, my God. Um, and bottle propping is something I saw a lot of at this orphanage. Like, oh there was no gosh. interaction other than, like, here's your bottle here's your liquid food. And like, um, I'll change your diaper like maybe three times a day. So total, it was awful. It was, wow. it means total emotional neglect. 
is that what do you think the reason is is it was a lack of education lack of resources just like culture like what's the I don't think it was culture uh, um I mean I would say that I felt like there were a lot of people culturally who felt like some lives mattered more than others but that's I mean we see that here too right yeah right but I would say it was definitely resources and training and I also think some of it is just they hardened themselves. And that's one of the things they talk about with a lot of the, it was mostly women who worked at some of these hospital settings and orphanages because hearing these cries of kids um, who are really distressed and you can't soothe them in the way you can't give them back their primary attachment figure. um, It's almost easier to kind of like just sort of build up walls and keep working. Wow. Um, so I think there was that. And I also think there was just like a real lack of value. All of these kids had disabilities. Most of them had cerebral palsy. Um, and I think there's also just a lack of value for people with disabilities there. Wow. And yeah, some lives matter more than others. And you would see these kids and you could not believe how old they were. Like their, their legs would be the size of maybe a thin kid's arms and they'd be stunted um, they, they had access to wheelchairs, but they would just be put in these cribs that were like, um, they were like cages, honestly. And so this is like, a, this is a topic that's really important to me, which is why I've spent so much time on it because some of the things that we knew about, you know, a hundred years ago, or we're learning about a hundred years ago, we are replicating now in our detention centers. Um, separating parents and kids. And so we know better and yet we value some lives more than others is frankly what's happening. So I'll go back to this. So hospitals were really preoccupied with germs. um, So kids were minimally held bridal props, Um, orphanages. So in 1915, infants in hospitals had a mortality rate of 31.7% to 75%. That's huge, right? Like, I mean, and it's hard to say, maybe some of that really was malnourishment, but a lot of what was being described was failure to thrive accompanied by depression and then just like lost hope Hmm. in Germany, seven out of 10 infants died in the first year that they were placed at some of these foundling homes. Right. So these are like illegitimate children. Jesus. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't know this was going here, Claire. Sorry. Do you want me to back make it not so intense? Um, no, I think it's, I think it's fine. I just wasn't prepared. Sorry. Maybe we'll title this be prepared. prepared. (laughs) Like from the Lion King. I'm sure that will help. Yes. We can actually <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So the best institutions had a mortality rate of 10%. So then in 1912 to 1922, malnourishment was a leading cause of death. So, you know, this is a lot of what I'm going to talk about next is in the U.S., right? So there's Bellevue Hospital, famous hospital. Some studies were done there looking at kids and um, like the more, t- like the failure to thrive rate, right? And, um, so they had a pretty high rate of failure to thrive. Then this guy comes in, and in 1942, he came in, and he said, like, okay, so now you have to hold kids, and it was great. And so I'm going to see if I can have um, – so he would say, why, uh, Bachwin, do infants in hospitals fail to gain weight when given a diet they would thrive on at home? Why do they sleep less, smile rarely, hardly babble? Why don't they respond to a smile or a coup? Why do they seem so listless and unhappy? Why don't they seem to take any pleasure in eating? 
Why do infections that last a day or two at homes persist for months on end in the ward? So um, obviously this is not resiliency, right? This is like failure to thrive and lack of hope. And so he takes over the hospital. He's saying like, you know, instead of like washing your hands twice before entering this ward, he had new signs that said, do not enter this nursery without picking up a baby. And so he really changed things. Hmm. Um, and then there were all these studies, you know, because there were, people were so interested in this, there were all these like amazing opportunities for people to do studies, right? And so one study, they put kids in institutions who, um, in foster care studies, and they, or sorry, foster care settings, and they looked at kids in institutions versus foster care settings, and there was a full-scale IQ of 68 versus 96. Hmm. So that's huge. So 68 would be mild, what's called mild mental retardation, or used yeah. to be mild intellectual disability. 96 is in the average range. Um, and so there were differences in IQ. Now, I do want to say, because these kids were three, um, measuring IQ at that age, it's not very reliable. So there is that problem with this, but nonetheless, it's so stark. I think like at least we can, and everybody's born with a range of intelligence, right? You're like, you're not born with this one ability, like there's a range and then environment and opportunity and, um, shape that range. Um, so then they also put kids in, um, this home. There was a home for feeble minded girls, which essentially was like a euphemism for, um, Girls with intellectual disabilities, Feeble right? Feeble-minded girls. That's the way they used to talk. Wow. Um, I know. So they took some kids. They put them in there with these girls who may not, especially because they were in a home themselves, may not have been knowledgeable about, like, a lot of sort of the higher-level things we think about, like reading, right, to kids, or all of these things that um, if you're, like, you kind of learn about as you're more educated, and especially at that time, there was not necessarily equal access to education. Those girls were likely not educated. So what this likely was, was just a t like the opportunity to be held, the opportunity to have attunement, to look at somebody's face, to smile, um, to have back and forth nonverbal and social communication. And so they take these kids, they put them in there. And again, um, they were younger kids. I think they were three, two. So their IQs increased from 64 to 92. Isn't that nuts? Hmm. So again, we're going from intellectual disability to average range. Um, and there was an improvement in language. So then this guy comes in and his name is Renee Spitz. And he is like, okay, I'm going to make a movie about this. Um, and the movie was very affecting and actually had a pretty big impact on policy. So the, I'm going to read from this. Okay. So the film was called Grief, Apparel in Infancy. What's it was called? silent. Grief. Grief. Grief colon, a peril in infancy. Oh, it had a colon. I was looking at the wrong one. <laughs> um, it was silent, crude, black and white with occasional title cards to explain what was being seen. Cause you know, this is like 1947 and this is like somebody's not like a student film project, but it's probably the equivalent of that. So we are in an unnamed institution in grainy flickering images. We are shown Jane, a little black baby just after her mother had been forced to leave her for what would turn out to be a three month period. She's a happy, approachable baby. So this, she was just left, right? Uh, she's happy, approachable, smiling and giggling as an adult observer plays with her. We are then shown Jane one week later. It is painful to recognize that this is the same child, depressed, eye searching, completely unresponsive, except 
finally, for a tremendous, hopeless, frowning wail. A kindly male observer cannot soothe the child. She kicks and sobs in terrible agony. So this, because this was just recent separation, right? Um, a title card, so this is, um, she would be in the stage of what's called protest, which I'll get to later. Um, a title card tells us that the despairing expression, tears and the moaning are unusual at this age, like for kids who aren't in a home, and that they lasted the entire three months her mother was gone. Looking at this child, we are experiencing sadness at its ultimate depth, the most profound a grief imaginable. And then you see a seven-month-old white baby. I don't know why it's important to distinguish the fact that one was black and one was white, but I'm just quoting. With a delightful face, an inquisitive eyes, an engaging, irresistibly sweet child, playing with Spitz, who was the filmmaker, shaking hands, allowing herself to be picked up, exploring his face. She, too, is a new arrival. The scene changes to a few weeks later. The baby now looks fretful and sad and has bags under her eyes. She is not interested in playing and doesn't respond to a little bell. I was going to make a butler joke, but it's so inappropriate. Okay, so she looks as if she's been through an unspeakable ordeal. She allows herself to be picked up by Spitz, but her crying does not stop. She seems to be in a state of terror. Another child lying dejected on a cot. She does not respond to an observer's efforts to engage her. She refuses to make eye contact. Um, and then, you know, it's basically kids who are have blank, dazed faces. Um, anyway, you get the point. So, right. So I'm going to get into that in a second with hospitals and hospital policy. But essentially, putting kids in institutions be it a hospital, be it an, an orphanage, whatever, where they don't have the opportunity to connect with a person, um, even if it's just one person on a regular basis and experience attunement um, and experience, I don't know if we'd call it quite attachment, but because attachment kind of takes a while, but let's just call it attachment to a primary caregiver um, and that loss of the former primary caregiver in some cases, like we see these behaviors, right? And we see we see how like fundamental all of this is to us, like as a species, right? It's, and, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, okay, so then in England, 1950, there's a guy named Bowlby, and he is the father of attachment, and he's in England, and he's been told that he can go investigate problems and needs of homeless kids because this is post-World War II. So he goes and he does his research for like, I think it was like six weeks, and then he goes over to the U.S. So remember, this is like before the age of the Internet. So it wasn't like he was, you know, talking to all of these people back in the United States. I think he knew they were there and had probably corresponded. Hey, can I come talk to you? But it wasn't like they were doing parallel, like they were doing parallel research, but it wasn't research that they were like coordinating together. Um, so he goes to the U.S. and starts working with social workers and child psychiatrists. And he looks at, the, again, the effects of foster care versus institutions. They see that there's benefits in IQ and lasting relationships for kids who are in foster care. Um, kids in the institution would sometimes go home because they weren't necessarily orphans. It's like they just couldn't be cared for. And then they'd be home and they'd make like language gains that would be three months worth of language in one to two weeks. And so then there, were even, there was even an institution run by psychoanalysts. So people who are trained in this area and even they were saying like, the best thing is to just go like put kids in homes with one person, even if we're highly trained, that's not what we need is like as human beings. Right. Yeah. So then there's all these theories, like why is this important? And so behaviorists are like, it's because you need reinforcement. And there is this guy. Um, oh, do you want to learn about another douche? 
Yeah. Okay. I love let's the learn. Okay. Stories. Great. Um, he is super important in behaviorism, so we'll probably lose that demographic. <laughs> but his name is John Watson, and he's really important in the field of behaviorism. She's killing and it tonight, Claire. Killing it. Like, what, what's that? I said you're killing it tonight. Okay. How many people can I offend in one sitting? We'll see. <laughs> um, behaviorist. Check. Um, so he talks about, <laughs> he was telling people, oh, here's what I wrote. The dumbass behaviorist who said not to pick up children. Yeah. That's what, like that's my notes. Freaking dumbass. He was like, he was saying you should, when you see your children in the morning, you should greet them by shaking your hand oh or shaking God. their hands. Like, can you imagine if you fucking got up and you're like, hello, children just went over and shook their hands and they weren't allowed to like hang on you or give you hugs or cling to you or do all the things that kids need. Oh I mean, it's, it's just total bullshit. So, um, anyway, so the behaviors were like, this is about, you know, reinforcement. Right. And then there's other people who are like this psychoanalysts are like, this is about drives, our innate drives for things. And then Bowlby's like, well, okay, I'm just going to go talk to someone else. So he starts talking to ethologists and I believe he talked to Conrad, Lo Conrad Lorenz, another douche, but I might be confusing my timelines because, like I said, he was all about, like, you might be master confusing your douches. What's that? You might be confusing your douches. I be, but I do know that Boldy is the hero. One of the heroes. So is Ainsworth. Okay. So, he starts talking to some ethologists, and they're like, hey, here's what imprinting is, and he's all of a sudden super interested. Like, maybe this explains it, right? Maybe there is this reason that we need attachment that is more than just, like, our drives or needs that we talk about in psychoanalysis or like behavioral reinforcement, like the dumbass behaviorist said. So, um, not all behaviorists are dumbasses, just like a few <laughs> like Watson. Okay. I'm please know I am not insulting behaviorists. Um, okay. So we get back to like bonding. So attunement, all these things. So all of a sudden he's like, Hey, um, he starts noticing like smiles, cries, um, clinging, there's cooing and babbling, they elicit a maternal response. Um, and so that exists for the purpose of survival. Um, and so now, like, fast forward to now, what we believe is, like, if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it was selected that, so we're bipedal, right? So we stand up on two legs and we have narrow pelvises. So really our babies, I've, I've heard that our babies are born about three months earlier than they really should be, yeah. but then they get stuck in the birth canal. So then they wouldn't survive and then like go have babies and pack their genes on. So the ones that were born after like 40 weeks gestation, they're the ones who survive. Right. But we, they're, but like infants are super dependent on their caregivers. Like we're not like gazelles on like, you know, on the savannah who just get up like, or giraffes or they get up like, and Speak they start for yourself. Walking. After right. my C-section, I was like, I'm just going to get up like later. <laughs> you seem fine. I'm talking about the, <laughs> talking about the baby. <laughs> like your baby oh. is not like a cow. So, <laughs> so babies can't get up and like defend themselves and run when there are predators. Right. So like the things that help us survive are like, like all the benefits. Like I seriously tell this to kids like third, fourth, and fourth graders every week and it's like my favorite thing talking about all this to them like there's a reason we have anxiety you know every feeling has a purpose and um there's a reason we have attachment i don't talk to them about attachment and i certainly wouldn't tell them all this stuff but um 
attachment is important for survival because essentially the baby does things like cooing and clinging and smiling that elicit this response from the caregiver that they want to take care of them. And probably the babies that didn't do that didn't survive. Right. Um, and they cry, which is like a punishment. (laughs) So you want the crying to stop just like we were talking about in the resiliency, um, episode. Mm -hmm. Right. But Mm -hmm. just like at a a different level. So we have all these things, right. And, and, um, the great apes have this too. Like if you ever go, if you ever get the opportunity, if you're in Chicago to go to the Lincoln park zoo, there's this amazing ape house and the gorillas are my favorite. Like I remember just spending an hour there when I was in high school, just like watching these gorillas. Cause I was enthralled with them because they're like a family group and you see the infants clinging and you see all of this behavior that mimics so much of our behavior. Yeah. But then just walk, walk right on by the chimps because they're like, they're kind of dicks. Like there's a lot of screaming and there's a lot of like eating of poop and like, just don't go there, but just watch the gorillas. Cause it's amazing watching, you know, the, like the grooming and watching just all of the affiliative behaviors that you see in these family groups. Right. So we are also apes, even though some people don't like to admit it. Um, so no, we're not apes. Sorry. We're primates. We are not apes. We are primates. I messed that up. So we are primates. We're not apes. We did not descend from apes. You messed up your own joke. (laughs) Okay, let me go backwards. So we are primates, even though some people don't want to admit it. We are not apes. We descended from a common ancestor known as the missing link. We're getting way off track. Nonetheless, all these things are important for survival. And some of our relatives have these same things, I am saying too. We do some of the same things. Okay. Okay. So anyway, um, moving on, we realize now that there is like, there's a really important reason that we do this. I would like to talk about the hospitals. Do you want me to talk about that another time? Because. Yeah, I think we should do, um, like an episode on the hospitals. So I think it's actually really interesting. Okay. All right, cool. Sorry. I talk a lot. I get really excited. Looks like you're like sweating. You get your butler over there to, uh, Pat, pat oh, down. I'm you not got... sweating. This is um, this is moisturizer. Oh wow, nice. I'm already ready for very, bed. Very shiny. I like yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for my aging skin. I thought you uh, got so worked up that so excited you were like you're sweating. What? Either way, no. either is cool. Either is cool, Claire. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. It's just my moisturizer doing its job. Um. <laughs> okay. Well, then I will talk about hospitals another time, and then that other time, can I talk about um? detention centers because that's really important to me yes Yes. okay I'll make that one shorter (laughs) I like the I like this I thought it was great it's very interesting very interesting how about next time we um kind of like let's try to tie it all together for parents can I do like one more and talk about hospitals and talk about Ainsworth and then like tie it all together the time after that, because there's different kinds of attachment that I want to, cause I'm talking about what happens when you don't have attachment, right? But there's insecure attachment. Like most of us are attached to somebody, but we have, there's a lot of us who have insecure attachment and that's where like Mary Ainsworth comes in. Mm. And, um, yeah, save it, save it. Cause let's do a whole thing on insecure attachment because I, I do think that's very relevant for so many of the, the kids we see and for ourselves too. Yeah, in our relationships, for sure. Yeah. I was told just the other day that I probably had an insecure attachment. So. I've heard that the majority of people have an insecure attachment. I don't know if that statistic's correct anymore, but that's what I had been told several years ago. 
Yeah, well, I'm part of that, so. We can overcome it. Yeah. I'll talk to you all about it next time. Let's do it. Get me attached, Claire. I'm, okay. I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for all the information. That was cool. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Here's <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> all right. Okay. We'll talk to you next time then. Okay. Talk to you next time. Okay. Goodbye. Bye-bye.